One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The tradition of Sufism has brought some of the most amazing examples of artistic expression in history, from music to visual arts and, probably most famously, literature. While the mystical experiences pointed to can never be fully articulated or expressed in language, as Rumi himself points out in the opening to his Masnavi, nonetheless, Sufis across history have loved to express their various states of consciousness, particularly through poetry. Whether it be the Tarjuman al-Ashwaq by Ibn Arabi, the At-Ta'iyya al-Kubra by Ibn al-Farid, the already mentioned Masnavi by Jalal ad-Din Rumi, or the many verses by the Turkish poet Yunus Emre. But one of the most revered and important works of Sufi poetry in history, one whose imagery has inspired innumerable mystics and artists since then, is the monumental work called The Conference of the Birds, written by the 13th century Persian poet Fariduddin Attar. A true classic and masterpiece not only of Sufi poetry, but of Persian literature in general, this work serves as a beautiful account of some of the most foundational and fundamental doctrines and ideas in Sufism, while also being incredibly engaging and beautiful to read at the same time. So join me as we dive deeper into the mind of Attar and his conference of the birds. When it comes to the world of Sufi poetry, Rumi is probably the most famous around the world. Translations of his works have been bestsellers in the United States and in Europe. But to those familiar with the topic, Attar isn't too far behind him, his works having been translated various times and often being referenced in other media or literature. 
Indeed, the great Rumi himself saw Attar as one of his main inspirations, and Attar in general is often upheld as one of the all-time greats of Persian poetry. There's a lot to be said about the Conference of the Birds, as we will see, but there isn't as much to be said about Attad himself. We know very little about his life beyond legendary hagiographical accounts. He was from the city of Nishapur in what is today northeastern Iran, and spent the majority of his life in that city. His year of birth isn't certain, but it appears that he began his life sometime in the early to mid-12th century, and that he lived into the first decades of the 13th. He doesn't seem to have been all that famous outside of his hometown during his life, although at the same time, Rumi, who was a younger contemporary, held him in great esteem, so he must have been famous to some degree. His personal name was Muhammad, and he was given the honorific name Fariduddin, which doesn't give us much information either, but his pen name, and the name by which he is known to most people, is Attar, which means something like perfumer, and carries with it connotations of being a seller of perfumes or drugs, as in medicine, essentially. So it's quite possible that he came from a family of pharmacists, and that he himself might have held this as his profession. Indeed, he makes reference himself to the fact that he wrote his poems in a darukhane, a Persian word meaning a chemist store or drug shop, essentially. Other than this, it's hard to say anything with certainty. It's said that he traveled for a period all around the Islamic world, from Mecca to Baghdad to Egypt and much more. Perhaps he would have studied under certain Sufi masters, but his relationship with Sufism is also a point of debate. It would seem obvious that he was involved with Sufism in some way, given the prominence of Sufi themes in his poetry as well as the widespread popularity of Sufism at the time, but some scholars argue that he may be more of an interested and educated outsider, being inspired by Sufis, their lives and teachings, but not being initiated into a Sufi order per se. I tend to fall into the less skeptical camp, and I believe that we can probably call Attar a Sufi, that he was personally involved in that tradition in some way. Uh, it seems likely to me based on his poetry and the way that he seems to be acquainted so deeply with many of these themes. In any case, he became incredibly important for the continuing development of Sufism after his time because so many later personalities was inspired by him. The way Attar is able to express or explore the practical and philosophical aspects of Sufism through colorful stories and beautiful poetry is astoundingly impressive, and this was not lost on figures like Rumi. Indeed, Rumi is just one example of a figure who saw Attar as one of his main inspirations, and who would in some ways continue the tradition that Attar pioneered, expressing Sufism through poetry in the Persian language. And while we're on the subject, one of the most famous stories about Attar is that he supposedly actually met with Rumi in real life. It is said that Rumi, who was a young boy at this time, and his father were forced to flee their homeland in Balkh due to the Mongol invasions. And while passing through Nishapur, they are thought to have visited Attar, who of course recognized the spiritual power of the young Jalaluddin. While this story is of course possible, it is most likely a legendary account that connects in a physical sense the two giants of Sufi poetry, but even if their meeting wasn't physical in real life, so to say, the intellectual impact that Attad had on Rumi cannot be overstated. Just like his birth, the death of Fariduddin Attar is somewhat of a mystery. The most popular account is that he died as a result of the Mongol sacking of Nishapur in 1229. 
Others think that he died a number of years earlier, but it seems at least that he died somewhere around the year 1220, give or take a few years. So what are those influential works that he supposedly composed in his drugstore? There are essentially seven works that are authentically attributed to Attar by modern scholars. One of them is a work of prose called the Tadkirat al-Awliya, the Memorial of the Saints, or the Memorial of God's Friends, which is a series of hagiographical accounts of the earliest Sufis. But the rest of the works are poetry, most of which was written in Persian. This includes a divan or collection of poems in various genres and meters, the Asrar Nama, the Book of Secrets, the Mukhtar Nama, the Choice Book, and the most famous of his works, the long poem that goes under the name The Conference of the Birds. The original title for this work is Mantaq At-Tayr, an Arabic phrase meaning something like the speech of the birds, and which is taken from the Quran. In Surah An-Naml, verse 16, it says, quote, And Solomon was David's heir, and he said, Men, we have been taught the speech of the birds, and we have been given of everything. Surely this is indeed the manifest bounty. But although the title is in Arabic, the poem itself is written in Persian. It is written in a poetic form known as the Mathnavi, which is essentially rhyming couplets. This form and the particular meter used by Attar is the same that would be adopted by Rumi in his great masterpiece, which itself is called the Masnavi Emanavi. So what is this poem all about? Let's explore the contents of this great work. The Conference of the Birds is a poem about Sufism. The whole thing is a metaphorical account of the different stages of the spiritual path according to Sufi doctrines, starting with the turning away from the desires of the nafs or self and going through various stages, eventually reaching the state of union and subsistence in the divine itself through annihilating this ego or self. The doctrines of Sufism are very complex and difficult to summarize in short terms. You can advise some of my earlier episodes for a deeper look into that topic, but in general, Sufism often emphasizes the imminence of God in creation, that God can be experienced in this life by rigorous spiritual practice. In the more speculative forms of Sufism, especially associated with figures like Ibn Arabi, it is often thought that God is all that exists in reality, and all quote-unquote else is really a reflection or manifestation of God. The spiritual path is one of gradually annihilating the nafs, the self or ego, until nothing remains to one's consciousness but God's very being. And the poem explores all of these themes through a delightful overarching fable about birds who go on a long journey. Attar begins the poem with an introduction that sort of sets the stage for what the work is going to be about. Here, he praises the prophet Muhammad, and it becomes very clear that he sees himself as a Sunni Muslim in particular, as he goes on to explicitly praise the so-called righteous caliphs of Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. But this introduction also gives us some indications of those classic doctrines that are often associated with Sufism, such as the monistic tendencies that we can sometimes find in that tradition. Just listen to these verses, for example. Now, poetry is always a special case because it is so dependent on the original language. There is rhyme and melody that only works, in this case, in Persian, and so no one can, of course, experience the poem to the full extent unless one reads it in the original language. Translation is, after all, always interpretation, as it is often said. 
But in this case, there is an amazing translation by Afham Darbandi and Dick Davis that actually tries to recapture some of the poetic nature of the original. They have made the poem rhyme just like in Persian and with a recurring melody. I really like this translation and I will be using it exclusively when quoting the poem in this episode. So here are a few lines. Quote, the world is names and signs, in truth it's he, whose being is its sole reality. This world, the world to come, and all besides, are him, know this, that nothing else abides. There is one essence, but diffused, deflected. There is one word, but variously inflected. A man must know the king and recognize him, although a hundred different clothes disguise him. It's not an error in this way to see him, since he is all and everything must be him. The error is when a man presumes to state that what he sees in God are separate. And after this introduction, the actual narrative of the poem itself starts. The poem recounts the story of all the birds of the world gathering for a conference to discuss who they should appoint as their king, something that proves to be very difficult. But then the hoopo, which is the wisest of the birds, starts speaking and explains that there is a great and legendary bird called the Simurg that lives in a far-off land and that they need to go find this Simurg to meet their true king. But the way there will be difficult and plagued with many dangers and obstacles. Not everyone will make it, but in the end the journey will be worth it because they will get to meet their new king. The poem then goes into a new section where each of the other birds starts making excuses for why they can't go on this journey. Here, each bird represents an aspect of the nafs, or ego, that clings to worldly things. One bird is attached to his possessions, another to reputation, and so on. In turn, each bird expresses their complaint and excuse, and each time the hoopoe answers by refuting their statements, pointing out that they are being misled by the self into ruin. He does this by telling all sorts of colorful stories, many of them taken from folk tales, legends, or the lives of earlier Sufis, and all of which has a clear message that critiques the human tendency to be occupied with the nafs and the world. After all the birds have presented their excuses and the hoopoe has critiqued all of them, he manages to convince a large number of birds to go on this long journey with him to find the Simurg. And just as he warned, it turns out that this journey is filled with dangers and it's, well, it's a very difficult journey. Indeed, there are seven valleys that the birds need to go through to get to their location. And each valley is given its own section. These valleys are... 1. The Valley of the Quest, which is the beginning of the journey when the wayfarer begins to shed aspects of his life and beliefs. 2. The Valley of Love, where the birds lose all sense of reason and instead enter into a stage of love, an important concept in Sufism. 3. The Valley of Knowledge, where all forms of worldly knowledge are rendered useless. 4. The Valley of Detachment, which is a stage where all attachments that the self or ego has to the world disappears. The world as we know it is left behind and we enter into a new kind of awareness. 5. The Valley of Unity, where the essential oneness or unity of all things in God is realized. 6. The Valley of Bewilderment, which is an important step on the way where the Sufi suddenly experiences a feeling of uncertainty. Somewhat similar to what is known as the dark night of the soul in Christian mysticism, it is a station of uncertainty and, as the name suggests, bewilderment over all beliefs and assumptions. An important step before the final and seventh valley is reached, which is the valley of poverty and annihilation. 
This is essentially what is known as fana in the Sufi tradition. It is the total extinction of the individual self into the reality of God, a realization that there is nothing but God and that what we thought was ourself was only a fleeting fancy. Nothing remains but the divine and the individual has been completely annihilated. This final stage is well expressed in one of the stories that is told in the book, and a pretty famous story about the moth and the flame, and I think it's worth quoting this story in full. Quote, Moths gathered in a fluttering throng one night to learn the truth about the candle's light, and they decided one of them should go to gather news of the elusive glow. One flew till in the distance he discerned a palace window where a candle burned, and went no nearer back again he flew to tell the others what he thought he knew. The mentor of the moth dismissed his claim, remarking he knows nothing of the flame. A moth more eager than the one before set out and passed beyond the palace door. He hovered in the aura of the fire, a trembling blur of timorous desire, then headed back to say how far he'd been and how much he'd undergone and seen. The mentor said, you do not bear the signs of one who's fathomed how the candle shines. Another moth flew out, his dizzy flight turned to an ardent wooing of the light. He dipped and soared and in his frenzied trance, both self and fire were mingled by his dance. The flame engulfed his wingtip's body, head, his being glowed a fierce translucent red. And when the mentor saw that sudden blaze, the moth's form lost within the glowing rays, he said, he knows, he knows the truth we seek, that hidden truth of which we cannot speak. To go beyond all knowledge is to find that comprehension which eludes the mind. And you can never gain the longed-for goal until you first outsoar both flesh and soul. But should one part remain, a single hair would drag you back and plunge you in despair. No creature's self can be admitted here, where all identity must disappear. And it is after this valley has been traversed that the poem reaches its breathtaking culmination a climax that certainly earns the poem its reputation as one of the most famous in history after this incredibly long and difficult journey the birds arrive at their destination. Whereas hundreds of birds set out on the quest, only 30 birds make it all the way to the realm of the Simurg. Now remember that number. 30 tired and devoted birds that are now aching to meet their king. As they arrive, a kind of guardian appears to greet them and after questioning them, deems that they are indeed ready to meet the Simurg. So, he leads them to a gate and unlocks it, behind which lies the answer to all their desires. But as they reach that final point of their journey, they are not met with some great majestic bird. Instead, they find themselves staring into a reflection. A reflection of themselves. Here, Attar reveals the great pun that lies at the heart of the whole story. The Persian word Simurg, Simurg, literally means 30 birds. They are the Simurg. The goal of their quest turns out not to have been some big powerful bird or something, but the innermost core of their own being. In the classic Sufi way, they are met with the reality that God is all that there is. God is not something that can be found out there somewhere, but in one's own heart, as the essence of one's own being. Again, I feel like it's worth quoting this section at length from the beautiful translation by Darbandi and Davis. Quote, There in the Simurg's radiant face they saw, themselves, the Simurg of the world, with awe. They gazed and dared at last to comprehend 
they were the Simurg and the journey's end. They see the Simurg at themselves they stare, and see a second Simurg standing there. They look at both and see the two are one, that this is that, that this, the goal, is one. They ask, but inwardly they make no sound, the meaning of these mysteries that confound. Their puzzled ignorance, how is it true, that we is not distinguished here from you? And silently their shining lord replies, I am a mirror set before your eyes. And all who come before my splendor see, themselves, their own unique reality. You came as thirty birds and therefore saw, these selfsame thirty birds, not less nor more. If you had come as forty, fifty, here, an answering forty, fifty would appear. Though you have struggled, wandered, traveled far, it is yourselves you see and what you are. Who sees the Lord? It is himself each sees. What ant's sight could discern the Pleiades? What anvil could be lifted by an ant, or could a fly subdue an elephant? How much you thought you knew and saw, but you now know that all you trusted was untrue. Though you traversed the valley's depths and fought with all the dangers that the journey brought, the journey was in me, the deeds were mine, you slept secure in being's inmost shrine. And since you came as thirty birds, you see, these thirty birds when you discover me, the Simurg, truth's last flawless jewel, the light in which you will be lost to mortal sight, dispersed to nothingness until once more you find in me the selves you were before. Then, as they listened to the Simurg's words, a trembling dissolution filled the birds. The substance of their being was undone, and they were lost like shade before the sun. Neither the pilgrims nor their guide remained, the Simurg ceased to speak, and silence reigned. It's absolutely breathtaking, even in translation. The story then goes on for a little while more, to some degree emphasizing that after fana, or annihilation, comes what is known as baqa, or um, subsistence in God, where one returns to oneself, but with a kind of newfound perspective on reality, based on that experience of, of union and of, of annihilation. You can probably tell why this has become such a classic, right? Through the very dramatic, overarching story of the birds and their journey, as well as through the shorter stories spread throughout, which are often very lighthearted and funny, telling tales of lovers, animals, kings, and dervishes, the poem manages to capture some of the most profound ideas and concepts in Sufism through a narrative that is very engaging and beautifully written. The imagery that Attar weaves really enhances the impact of these ideas and transports the reader into a different realm. All the parts of the tale represent an aspect of Sufism. The birds are of course us humans and the different desires and attachments that we have to the world. The hoopoe represents the wise Sufi sheikh who leads his student on the spiritual path to God. That path is of course represented by the journey that the birds go on, and the seven valleys represent the stages or stations that the Sufi adept will go through in the process of purifying his soul on the way to union. The Simurg is God, the absolute reality, who turns out in the end to be imminent in all things, reality and ourselves only being a reflection of his infinite being. This poem, for good reason, left a major impact and mark on later Persian poetry and on Sufism in general. As we've stated previously, Rumi was incredibly influenced by Attar and the Conference of the Birds, and he probably used it as an inspiration for his own magnificent work called the Masnavi. 
Aside from Rumi, many other later thinkers would often use much of the imagery that Attar creates in this poem, and a lot of the same style of expressing many of these Sufi ideas come from this poem originally. Even outside of Islam and Sufism, uh, even someone like Baha'u'llah, the founder and prophet of the Baha'i faith, wrote a work called The Seven Valleys, which as you can tell just by the name, is basically entirely based on the story in the Conference of the Birds. It's often referenced in culture today. There are music albums named after the poem, narratives that take the same basic form, and much more. Attar remains one of the most famous names in Sufism and in Persian poetry. While we don't know much about his life, the incredible poems that he gave us are enough to cement him as an incredibly important figure in history. Hopefully now you understand why. Just retelling the basic plot of this story kind of gives me the feels. I think it's no secret that I really like this work, um, and I really recommend that you check it out too. It's, an, um, it's a magnificent piece of literature, and especially if you're interested in, in Sufism, it's an absolutely beautiful expression of many of those core ideas from that tradition. If you know Persian, then you are luckier than me, and you should probably pick it up in the original language and experience that true uh, melody and rhyme of, of this poem, but even in translation it's an incredibly engaging and beautiful work, of course, because I've been quoting from that translation in particular in this episode. I recommend the translation by Darbandi and Dick Davis, but there are other translations out there as well. I look forward to exploring more of the classics of Sufi literature with you guys, and of course there is a lot to explore there, so uh, we have a lot of fun stuff ahead of us. Uh, for now, I thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.